0: Previously on 4 at the back.
1: Well, and this is a tough week to try to make that call because everybody's a little bit on edge with the two results thus far in the Confederations Cup. Finally, Jonathan wait, wait, writes...
2: Wait until we lose to Egypt.
0: And welcome to the game of the year, the one we've all been waiting for. There's a capacity crowd here.
3: The conditions are absolutely perfect with an atmosphere that's really electric. Now the band's just leading the pitch, and we're waiting for it. Yes, I, I think
0: I can see them. Yes, it's the team. Here no, they come. Just listen to that wall. You are listening to 4 at the Back with Dan and Ken.
1: We're back. Welcome to episode number 13 of 4 at the Back with Dan and Ken. Dan Loney is the one with the nasally voice and the rapier wit, and I am the one with sports and the proper perspective and the condescending attitude. That's just <laughs> so you can keep us straight. I was on vacation last week. Dan, what did you do?
2: I predicted confidently that the United States would lose to Egypt and uh, then come back home with uh, their program in complete disarray. Well, that worked out well for you. I'm glad about that. This week we will dissect
1: the U.S. national team's confabulous run in the Confederations Cup. We could be losing the longest running professional soccer team in this country. Historian and author Roger Allaway stops by to talk about his very interesting new book, and we'll look at the U.S. Open Cup. It's down to the quarterfinals, and USL's making some noise in the tournament again. What does that all mean? Well, we'll talk about all that stuff over the next half hour or so.
0: Topic one.
1: Everybody had left the U.S. for dead in South Africa. It's not surprising, seeing as how a lot of tourists seem to end up that way there. They needed a miracle to get into the semis at all, and they got it. And they pulled off a stunner against Spain and had Brazil on the ropes for falling 3-2 in the championship of the Confederations Cup. Now, as they do once in a blue moon, Americans sat up and took notice. About 3 million people watched last Sunday's game against Brazil. And while the result was disappointing, I think that and the Spain game were evidence, not that we've turned the corner as a soccer nation, Dan, not yet, but I think it is evidence that every now and then, our national team pulls off something really amazing. I don't think we've fixed everything,
2: but they played some really quality soccer last week, finally. Oh, absolutely they did. It was it was wonderful to watch. It was almost worth Michael Bradley calling every citizen of the United States a traitorous, cowardly, lily-livered, non-supporter of the United States. And the only people who believed in them were in the lot, which was true. Nobody thought they could do it except that team. So uh, that's part of what was astonishing. I don't think we finished processing this. This was such a massive, monstrous turnaround from the last time we were on the air, uh, that what it means for the program and what it means for soccer in the country, There, it hasn't turned a quarter, but it says a lot about the potential fan base. It's so much bigger than we thought, and I don't think anybody was prepared for that. You
1: mentioned Michael Bradley. Of course, we have the inevitable backlash. There were those who wanted Bob Bradley fired after the first two games, and they're not changing their tunes. But some of them are saying, yeah, but with another coach, we would have beaten
2: Brazil as if Brazil loses big games all the time. (laughs) (laughs) we If anyone had said before the tournament that if Bob Bradley loses the final, (laughs) he would be fine. Again, this is the sort of mental roller coaster that we went on. Nobody is where they were two weeks ago. Absolutely nobody, not not Bob and not the dumbest fan on the Internet. This is just something that smacked us all right between the eyes, and no one has thought this through quite yet, probably not even Bob Bradley. Well, now there's the Gold Cup. Quick
1: turnaround. The U.S. plays Grenada in Seattle on Saturday. I gotta say I like our chances, uh, but this was going to be a nice little low-key tournament for the U.S. with a bunch of other guys trying to imp- impress Bradley, maybe grab a spot because the varsity guys have been stinking up the joint. But now what? Now does the U.S. have to have to win the Gold Cup to impress everybody who maybe tuned in on Sunday and now thinks that all of a sudden we're this great soccer nation? Or can, you know, can can we just admit that winning the Gold Cup doesn't really mean much every other time you play
2: it? I'll tell you what I think. I think that there's there's a couple of different questions there. What does it mean for the players, and what does it mean for the audience? Uh, I think the audience is only going to tune in when the United States plays someone like Brazil or Spain or does something very notable. So I think the Gold Cup is a mulligan, because the only one on the schedule that could potentially mean anything really is Mexico. So as far as impressing the audience, I don't think that's the, I think the audience is already there. I think there are a number of casual, a huge number of casual fans that are going to pay attention. But as far as anybody who is going to say, well, maybe I'm on board, but we have to beat Grenada. Nobody is paying that close attention yet. I don't think anybody has been turned into a hardcore fan from total ignorance. I don't think that's happened. As far as the Gold Cup, um, I think we have a better chance of winning it now because of the players we have called in. If they are going to get that roster spot, they have to play extremely well. That was what was very different from two weeks ago when When people who hadn't stepped on the field in a month were being hailed as our potential saviors. Now they have to produce. Otherwise, this roster is 95 97% set. And after playing Grenada Saturday,
1: the U.S. has Honduras on Wednesday. Good thing that's at RFK and not in Honduras, given recent events. And they'll finish group play in Foxborough on the 11th against Haiti.
2: The last time the United States played Honduras at RFK, they lost. That was a couple minutes ago, but still, just want to put that out there. That was a uh, qualifying for 2001, I think it was. That was when Ernie Stewart missed the PK. I was there. I remember it distinctly. Yeah. Sorry, didn't mean to bum everyone out. Oh, no worries, Killjoy. Well, especially this week. I mean, it's you know, we, we beat Spain. We took the lead on Brazil, but I'm still mad about 2001. Get over it. Yeah, moveon.org is not sponsoring this show, right? Buzzkill.
3: <laughs> Topic two.
2: We may
1: be losing the longest-running professional soccer franchise in this country. Unless you follow the indoor game, though, you may not be that familiar with that franchise. It's the Milwaukee Wave, which has been in operation since 1984. The Wave could be done, along with their league, the Extreme Soccer League. And Here we bring in my man Tom Wynn, who's been the voice of the Wave for almost all of that time. Tom, in essence, what is the deal here? Well, what I've
3: heard, Ken, is that since the Extreme Soccer League, the XSL is technically folding as of tomorrow, that... Um, the Wave no longer will be a member of the, of the XSL, and that being the case, their owner, Charlie Krause, uh, no longer wants to own the team. Now, there's a, a press conference in Milwaukee on Monday, uh, which they're going to elaborate on the situation, but it's, it's certainly no secret around Milwaukee that uh, Charlie has been looking to sell the team for the past uh, couple of years. In fact, he agreed to, to keep uh, underwriting the team through last season, the first year of the XSL, hoping that he and be able to sell it, but uh, as, of, as of now, as what I understand, there, there aren't any buyers. So, yeah, this, this indeed could be the final chapter of the wave unless uh, something dramatic happens here within, uh, maybe within the next couple months. If, if somebody did step forward to buy the wave, then you have the potential that uh, they could play in the NISL uh, the with the old rivals Philly and Baltimore uh, probably pick up Detroit from the XSL as well. But beyond that, again, I, I haven't heard of anybody uh, in the community, anybody else who's interested
1: right now in uh, in, in buying the team. Well, I know that Keith Tozer, the coach who has more wins than anybody ever in indoor, and rightfully so, from what I understand or what I hear, he's going to try to put together a campaign to try to drum up you know, a potential investor, do you think it can be done? I mean, this team has 25 years of history and some standing in this market. You, you would think Milwaukeeans wouldn't want to see it go away.
3: Well, if anybody can do it, Keith would certainly be the one. I mean, I, I think his presence uh, involved in, you know, in any indoor soccer operation in Milwaukee would, would be critical to try to uh, to drop some new support. Uh, you know, there's no doubt there's, there's still a pretty solid fan base. Uh, the Wave averaged uh, 4,000 fans per game last year and uh you know you still get a handful of sponsors and and you still have uh i guess you know the the comprehensive uh interest of the soccer community. there is no professional outdoor team in Milwaukee, so therefore the wave is is still the primary uh professional soccer team so yeah i I think there are some possibilities Ken. i i again i i haven't talked with keith i I don't know exactly what uh you know his his interest might be i mean obviously he certainly loves Milwaukee he loves the wave he's uh He's been coaching the Wave uh, for uh, 17 seasons, and uh, there's no doubt that uh, you know he would would like to salvage the Wave if, if at all possible. But uh, again, you know he's going to have to do it pretty quickly uh, because I would think you you have to have some new ownership group that's uh, that's going to acquire the team with, within the next month or so, uh, you know maybe maybe two months at the most, and then get ready to uh, to go play in the NISL. So I, I'm sure they're they're operating on a very tight timetable here.
1: We're talking with Tom Wynn, who's been the voice of the Wave since, I guess, since the team began. And, Tom, you've seen so many changes over the years since 1984, several different leagues, a lot of different owners, scoring systems, venues, TV deals, no TV deals. This, this sport has been one of change almost constantly for the last 25 years. But can you even wrap your head really around the notion that, you know, the Wave could conceivably go away or that indoor soccer could conceivably go away?
3: Yeah, I, I think the latter is probably what uh, what is probably looming. Ken, you know, again, I, without knowing what uh, the owners were thinking when they broke up the MISL to split it into two leagues, I, I thought that certainly was an ominous uh an ominous development. Uh, you know, heading into last year, it, it seems like what we've had consistently is, you know, we haven't been able to get all the owners. On the same page with solid leadership from from the league office, you know whether it be the old MISL, the AISA, the NPSL, the MISL 2 and you know uh, then the XSL, the NISL. You know there's uh, there just seems to be uh, too many philosophical differences for uh, I was talking about the owners, you know, to get together and uh, and and do this thing right. The problem is is that even at this stage, let's say if you you know, you're able to get indoor soccer under one roof with uh, with good leadership from the commissioner's office and, and good leadership among the owners. I, I just think the sport has been it's been beat up so badly. You know, it's it's hard for people to have a lot of faith uh, in in the sport itself. Milwaukee is certainly one of the few communities you know which has had the continuity. I mean, Milwaukee, Baltimore, Philly uh, those are those are probably your your main three right now. And uh, you know, if you lose Milwaukee, then again you. You got to wonder uh, what what is going to happen to the sport. I, I think there's a very real possibility that uh, if the wave goes down, that uh, you know you may not have uh, professional indoor soccer beyond this uh, this upcoming season, no matter what form it's in.
1: If and we hope it isn't, but if this is the end for the wave or for indoor soccer eventually, what what memories will you take from it after 25 years of, of being the voice of the wave?
3: Well, uh, it's actually been uh, 21, but, uh, yeah, so you seem like 25, Ken. Um, I would say probably the, the four championships that, uh, that the Wave won, I mean, obviously those, those are certainly highlights in Milwaukee. I would say, uh, you know, just a, a lot of the, uh, the great players, the great athletes that I've seen, a lot of the great people that, uh, that have gotten to know, you know, whether it be players, coaches, broadcasters, uh, whoever, uh, you know, just been a tremendous experience, uh, certainly had a chance to, you don't know, see every major city in North America since practically everybody's had an indoor soccer team at one time or another <laughs> during, during that time. But, uh, yeah, no, no doubt about it. it, it it's, it's been a great run. It, uh, uh, certainly I wouldn't trade it for anything. But, uh, yeah, you know, it looks like unless, uh, unless we really get some, uh, some miraculous intervention here, at least in Milwaukee, uh, in the next, uh, the next few weeks, uh, that could be
1: the end of the run. Tommy and Voice of the Milwaukee Wave for more than two decades and hopefully many more to come. Hopefully something happens. Many thanks to you, sir. Okay, thank you, Ken. Dan, I know you're not really an indoor guy, but you can appreciate history and longevity, and even you can surely admit that losing a long standing pro club is not a good thing.
2: Well, it's really at this point about whether it's been dead and just stopped moving it. I've I've not been impressed with the Extreme Soccer League. I know the wave and with indoor, the teams are bigger than whatever the league of the month or the league of the year. But it's for 20 years now. You open up an indoor franchise, and this is the risk you've been taking. They've been living on borrowed time for a while now.
1: Well, speaking of history, we'll talk with historian Roger Allaway about his new book that links the New York Cosmos and Bethlehem Steel FC. Yes, there is a link. You might be surprised. We're back after this. This is Four at the Back.
3: Hi, I'm Fran Drescher. It took me two years to get a proper diagnosis of uterine cancer. So here are some tips I learned the hard way to the doctor armed with lots of questions and bring a friend with you even right into the examining room to write down the answers and get a second opinion to do a check on your diagnosis and treatment to get a list of questions to ask go to ahrq.gov it's your life be in charge of
1: your health
0: a message from hhs and the cancer schmancer foundation you are listening to four at the back with dan and ken
1: and thank you for listening. We do appreciate it. Thanks to those of you who've been subscribing and sending us your feedback and rating the show on iTunes. Please tell a friend.
0: Topic three.
1: I love a good trip down memory lane, even if I'm too young to have all the memories that we're talking about. Roger Holloway is the historian for the National Soccer Hall of Fame, and his new book is called Corner Offices and Corner Kicks. It's a look at two big names in the history of American soccer, the New York Cosmos, with whom you're no doubt familiar, and Bethlehem Steel FC, with whom you may not be. I asked Roger why he wanted to write this book.
0: Because of the similarities between the two teams. The similarities on the field are are clear. They're, I think, the two greatest teams in American soccer history. But the the other similarities, um, the, the main one being the one that uh, brings about the title, Corner Offices and Corner Kicks, uh, and the book has a subtitle, which isn't on the front cover, although it is on the title page. Uh, how big business created America's two greatest soccer dynasties, Bethlehem Steel and the New York Cosmos, and the business connection is what really brings the two of them together as a as a match pair for a for a single story, at least in my mind.
1: Obviously, Roger, everyone knows about the Cosmos. That's a well-known story, but the Bethlehem Steel story is one that's a lot less well-known unless you're really a, an aficionado or really a historian of the sport. Give our, our audience a little bit of a background on that team.
0: They started as a, a typical industrial league company team of, of that era. They, they started, uh, started playing in, in 1907 just as some, some factory workers kicking a ball around, and they evolved gradually. The company realized the benefits of uh, a company-sponsored athletic team for uh, keeping the workers happy, and there was one person in particular who was the driving force behind the team. He's the reason why it happened at Bethlehem Steel and not of other companies. His name was Edgar Lewis, and he was an executive of the company. Most of the players were blue-collar workers. He was not. He was unusual. Um, He... uh, came to Bethlehem Steel in 1906 as the head of the accounting department. By the time he left in 1930, he was an executive vice president, uh, making almost $400,000 a year. And he was the driving force behind the team. And uh, he played up through 1914, and he oversaw the team from the uh, executive suite thereafter. And... uh, he enabled them to import a lot of players from Scotland. He was more than anybody the reason, more than anything, the reason why it happened at Bethlehem, that they had this friend in the executive suite who, uh, who was able to help the team financially.
1: Obviously the similarities between these two teams, the Cosmos and Bethlehem Steel, uh, it- uh, the, the similarities extend to their eventual demise, don't they, in terms of, and to some respect, the, the demise of the leagues in which they played, in that there was an economic downturn, there was infighting, there was, you know, owners who may not have been in it for, all the, for the right reasons. Can you compare and contrast, the, if there is a contrast, to, to the, the way these two teams and their respective leagues eventually went away?
0: Yes, they are very similar, and... Uh, uh, Whether they, whether they would have lasted too much longer themselves, uh, is, is debatable since, since their leagues didn't last. The reasons were very similar with one exception among the things that you just cited, and that's owners who didn't really care all that much. And that certainly was a problem with the NASL. I don't think it was as much with the original ASL. The overall economic climate was much worse for the original ASL since it, um, it folded within the first few years after that 1929 stock market crash in the early years of the Depression. Bethlehem Steel folded uh, a little bit before the League did. Bethlehem Steel was disbanded in particular as a result of the departure of Edgar Lewis. The Cosmos did not have the departure of a particular person, but uh, but they had uh, serious economic problems themselves because Atari brought one of communications profits down. So the Cosmos suffered worse economic problems than Bethlehem Steel did, but Bethlehem Steel had some problems coming.
1: Corner Offices and Corner Kicks is the name of the book. National Soccer Hall of Fame historian Roger Allaway is the author. Roger, last thing before we let you go. Everyone knows that the Cosmos left quite a legacy. The great players that they had, the great crowds that they drew with their spot in American, uh the zeitgeist. Did Bethlehem Steel leave a legacy, or are they largely just a forgotten part of U.S. soccer history that, that you hope to, to not remain forgotten?
0: I don't think they left much of a legacy. Um, they left a legacy on the playing field to those who study it didn't leave any sort of a once-in-a-lifetime type legacy.
1: Roger Alway, thanks so much for your time. Good luck with the book. Hope it's a big success. Thank you very much, Dan. So, Dan, yeah, they're not making movies about Bethlehem Steel, but still this sounds like at least an interesting read and a, and a very interesting uh, uh, slice of Americana.
2: Uh, to me, the, the ASL of the 20s, it's, it's the Atlantis. It's this great lost soccer league that colin joe's and uh, roger alloway helped uh pretty much recover from the ruins and while Beth, you're right uh the Bethlehem steel club their legacy was forgotten but you can say about a lot of uh, a lot of great archaeological discoveries and this puts a lot of our history in perspective i am excited about this book
3: topic four
2: and finally this week, the Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup is down
1: to the quarterfinals and half of the field of eight is from the United Soccer Leagues. Four teams upset MLS clubs in the third round. Dan, what, if anything, does this prove? It proves
2: MLS clubs aren't trying. I hate to be the one who diminishes the USL achievement, but what one or two upsets is one thing when you have, Four And when you have another one or two avoided because of penalties, it's because MLS teams are bringing the bottom of their roster and they are not, they should be trying, the bottom of the roster players should be trying, if anything, harder than the starters, but they're not good enough. Uh, and I think ultimately that is going to be the issue until you can get a cattle prod to MLS teams to get them to feel the side or remember how to play soccer, you're going to get more. They are not even upsets at this point. Charleston beating Chivas in the Open Cup is not an upset. The way New England half-assed it against Harrisburg, I don't think you can call that an upset. And I could go down the list. The only one, that Chicago had this brutal schedule, uh, but that's self-inflicted. Once you accept the invitation and play in the Superliga, and you concentrate on the Super Liga, you're going to lose to Wilmington. And the, you know what? I'll bet they're fine with it. I really do. I know. Obviously, there are some fans who aren't, but, I mean, it's just nature
1: of the beast when you compress all of these tournaments into this period of time, and you expect – Clubs with thin rosters to begin with to be able to prioritize
2: all of them on the same level. It's just not going to happen. That's why Superliga came about because the outside tournament that existed in this country does not make money for MLS teams. The problem is it does probably does a lot for U.S. soccer, but for the USL, it's great. So uh, at some point, you have to. Make sure it doesn't cheapen the achievement too much, the way I've just done. But you can't. If this is a USL top-heavy tournament, then no one's going to pay attention. There'll be no reason for MLS teams to even to even enter. Much as any teams did not back in the day.
1: You can go to USOpenCup.com in case you missed any of the results. We'll run them down quickly. Harrisburg beat New England two to one. DC United struggled against the amateurs from Ocean City, but finally beat them two then- nil.
2: Yeah, D.C. United, defending Open Cup champions, first place in the East, took to the wall by PDL amateurs. If if there was no other result in this round, that would be the one that tells you pretty much all you need to know, nothing against the Ocean City Barons, but uh, how many more clues do you need? That's true. Wilmington
1: beat Chicago 1-0. Charleston, as you... Called a couple of weeks ago. Beat Chivas not, USA 3-1. Not even an
2: upset. Not, not even an upset.
1: Rochester advanced in penalties after a 1-1 draw with Columbus. Kansas City advanced on penalties after a 3-3 draw with Minnesota. And Minnesota's stinking up USL 1 right now. Yeah, Houston defeated their in-state rivals uh, Austin 2-0. And Seattle took out Portland 2-1 in a great game in front of more than 16,000 in Portland. So when all is said and done of the eight matchups... Four MLS teams moved on, four did not. Our quarterfinals are D.C. hosting Harrisburg, Rochester playing host to Wilmington, Houston will travel to Charleston, and Seattle host Kansas City. We're assured of having a USL team in the semifinals. Do you think we'll have one in the final? I
2: think we should focus on at least we'll have an MLS team in the semifinals. Um, I had high hopes for Houston. They looked awful this past week, but they're a good team. And they got to go to South Carolina. Charleston's one team that, from the lower divisions, you don't want anything to do with. Uh The USL, two teams, I don't think they're going to make it. I think we're looking at D.C. and Rochester. Who knows what will happen after that. And Seattle, someone pointed out to me, Seattle still has the USL hangover where they still care about the Open Cup. So I think Seattle may win it a year too late to really do something for the USL. I think they're your favorites right now. All right, let's go to the emails.
1: just a couple of them this week. Michael from Virginia writes, Hi, Ken, I've been a visitor to your site since the glory days of the attendance database. Love the show. Listen to it every Friday and have already got a couple other people hooked on it. I have an idea for a future topic, Michael writes. Uh, you and Dan should have a mock debate about whether MLS or the USL is the country's top soccer league. Keep up the good work, gentlemen. Well, Michael, thank you very much for listening. Thanks for your kind words. Thanks for turning some people onto the show. No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Moving on. Matthew, Matthew from uh, Frederick, Maryland. We're very big in the D.C. area for some reason. Um, just found the podcast, and it's great, Matthew writes. Uh says, I like the fact that you cover not just MLS, but WPS, national team, and importantly, USL. Uh, and he sends us his Mount Rushmore, which is a topic from a few weeks ago. Uh, Walter Barr, you know, we talked about having guys right. that represent that era. And Walter Barr, obviously, not only that, but not only because of what he did, but because of uh, the genes that he passed along. Christine Lilly, you know, here we we get into the someone has to represent women's soccer, and obviously, Lil is uh, is a far better player, I think, than Amia Ham, who we also have
2: I, far better. She lasted
1: longer. Uh, You know what? I think. Don't want to run down Mia Hamm. No, 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 not at all. But I think less glamorous, only from the standpoint of the the work that she did, um, didn't attract attention. But seriously, if there is no Christine Lilly, there is no Brandy Chastain. There is no cover of Newsweek and Time. There is no sports bra. Okay, uh, not to diminish
2: Mia Hamm, but Christine Lilly, a heckler. You foolish. can say that about Mia, or or especially Michelle Akers. You can say that about Brianna Scurry. I mean that the the girls of summer, as it were, that was such a team effort. So picking one individual, it's tough. But we just. Yeah. Decided- our well, contrary to the whole ethos of that team.
1: Right. And uh, our, but our, our consensus is that Mia represents that just because she was the face of that whole thing. She, yeah, she won more fans right. to the sport. Even though she was not the best player. But Lily is not a bad choice as well. And then Lamar. Lamar I'm not
2: saying that either.
1: Right, and and Lamar Hunt for all the reasons that we have mentioned, and then uh, you know he, he he has a non-American Mount Rushmore, and I think you know we already had some non-Americans on. I mean, we all had, we both had Pele on all. Yeah, yeah, he's Three got seasons, one championship, but a lasting no, legacy. No caps. <laughs> Uh yeah why couldn't we get him to play for the US? Um, Steve
2: Nash because
1: we were prejudiced against
2: Brazilians in the 70s that's why.
1: He wouldn't play for uh Team America in the Bicentennial Cup even though other uh I think Bobby Moore played for us in the Bicentennial Cup strangely enough. Anyway also listen, uh Pele Steve Nash yeah Nash is nice A no, a statue yet. he's not going on the Mount Rushmore. Uh Bora
2: for the next 40 years <laughs> getting the white cap. and even then the white caps so he'd be on the Canadian Mount Rushmore.
1: Exactly. That's what he said. This is the non-American Mount Rushmore. He has Bora, Militinovich? no, no, and uh, your, your boy David Beckham, obviously. But I think it's more about the the designated player rule. You put the DP up on uh, on Mount Rushmore, but we'll get into Beckham. Not yet, you don't. Well, yep. you might
2: as well have Danilson up there. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> That's think what we're celebrating. I think on balance. Blanco, me. I I hate Blanco for all for all the reasons a good American and a good human being should. Right now, he's a better choice if you're picking a big-name MLS player, with the exception of Donovan.
1: Uh, Michael, who is uh, another Michael, this one from Texas, who's a longtime uh, listener, a frequent emailer, and was actually my stalker for a little while, says thank you for posting the full interview with Shep Messing. <laughs> it, it was romantic. <laughs> it was terrific. He's a great guest. You guys should bring back periodically. I cannot wait to read his book. Thank you very much, Michael. Yeah, we uh, Shep great. was great. Um, Shep was terrific. We're we're glad to, to have had him on uh, had him on the show. Uh, and finally, we'll close with, uh, with Matt, who has written before. He says, I know it's easy to say now, but I never thought we'd lose to Egypt and was disheartened by our performance against Brazil, not against Italy, but was hoping for a performance versus Egypt that showed some resilience as we got it. Uh, and uh, this was before the Spain match where he says it has the potential to get ugly, but honestly, the score doesn't matter to me if we play hard, if we play our game. If we don't resemble our 1994 bunkering Bora Ball selves, if Beasley doesn't see the field as a left back, I'll be happy. So
2: I'm guessing Matt was over the moon about that one. I, uh, he's not alone. So much change in the past two weeks. Uh, that, again, again, completely out of nowhere, and the only one, I guess, who saw it coming was Michael Bradley. So get your lottery numbers from, uh, from Junior. And finally, once again, time for the lightning round.
1: Thirty seconds on the clock, please. Once again, Dan, first answer that comes to your mind. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. Here we go. Safer destination, South Africa or South Central?
2: Uh, the su- South Central, uh, the, it's South L.A. now, but don't wear your Confederate bumper sticker. Are you more likely to watch Super Liga or the Superstars on ABC?
1: I'm going to watch Super Friends with uh, Gleep the Monkey. And does the
2: Marta bobblehead that you're sending me in the mail come with a Johanna Frisk bobblehead? I want the Martina Franco bobblehead, which has the teeny cute little baby bobblehead growing inside it.
1: And I think that's it, Dana, as well as it should be. Any final thoughts?
2: (laughs) Of course not.
1: Many thanks to Tom Wynn, to Roger Alway, and to you for listening. Tell a friend. Until next time, for Dan Loney, I'm Ken Tomash, and this has been Fourth Back.
0: Well, there it is, a match that had everything, and one that certainly lived up to its promise. It's only a pity that somebody usually has to lose. But there's always another day, another great match to be drawn, lost, or won, when we'll join you again.